Let's bow our heads, let's pray, and let's get, let's get into this message. Father, we thank you, God, so much, Lord, for this day. It is gloomy, Lord, but it is a day of celebration because we see brothers and sisters willing to say, yes, Lord. Yes, we will give our lives into the promise of, not the promise of tomorrow, but the promise that you are real, that you are the one working, molding, shaping our very existence, that you are the one that's going to Take the life of Dennis, of Jonathan and Ha, and use it for a glory that is unknown and unspeakable. A glory that will write history, a glory, O oh Lord, that will go down in the letters, Lord, <clears throat> of the heroes of faith. And so I thank you, God, for them, and I thank you, Lord, for their commitment and their surrender this day. And I ask, Lord, as we look into your word, give us clarity, give us wisdom, give us truth. We thank you, we praise you, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. <sighs> Welcome, guys. It's good to have you. This is a weird weekend, EDC1, TLC0, all right? One day, one day, one day we will win. One day we will win, okay? But not today. <laughs> all right, we are in a series called All in the Family. We are in a series called All in the Family. I'm excited. I'm excited for this series because, you know, when we started this year, our, our dream and our hope and our goal was to say, we want you guys to be game changers. We want you guys to, to actually believe that you can change the game of the world around you, that culture is taking you one way, but God in his dominion, God in his wisdom is saying, I want to restore what is broken. And every generation, they, they do their best job at trying to restore this generation. And yet God calls his people. God calls a group of young men and women to stand up and say, let me use you to change the game, right? And we believed as leaders, as we begin to kind of just kind of unfold this and kind of hash this out, that where it really starts, it starts in the family. It starts in the family. It starts within the unit of father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, child, right? It starts in the picture of man, woman. It starts in the family because if the family unit is secure and flourishing, then the neighborhoods flourish, the towns flourish, cities flourish, states flourish, country flourish, world flourish, right? And we really believe that. We really believe that because without the family unit, right, I mean, God made it for that very purpose. But some of us, when we think about the family, we, we, we don't like it because we come from a lot of broken families. We come from a lot of hypocritical families. We come from a lot of divorced families, from a lot of uh, painful families, drug-addicted families, prisoners' families. We, we came from a lot of different places, and we're saying, like, I don't believe that family can do anything. I'm a product of a broken family. And you're right, because most often we don't actually remember the purpose of why family exists. See, if God is real and if God is true, then he, he made the institution of family, right? And he knows exactly what makes a family flourish. And so anytime anyone goes off of those purposes, goes off of that alignment, of course we get a cycle of brokenness. We get a cycle of pain. We get a cycle of hurt that gets passed on from one generation to the next generation. It happens over and over, and you see it, right? Divorced families become, you know, Kids who can't commit to life or can't commit to a partner. Divorced families ends up being like, you know, children being like um, giving their lives away for other people over and over. All right? Brokenness creates brokenness because we've lost our purpose. And so we talked about what, what was the purpose of family. Can we go back to it? And then whenever we lose our way, whenever we start questioning what's wrong with my family, what's wrong with what's going on here, we go back to the purpose. Are we really reflecting the image of God? Are we creating legacy? Are we loving God and being loved by God? Okay? And we kind of extended the, the definition of family, not just to the immediate home family, but to church family, to your work family, to your friendship families. Right? They're all part of this community, this hub, this tribe that we are a part of. Okay? And so when we begin to expand that definition, we start asking the question, then what's the role of a man and a woman? What's the role of a man and a woman? Okay? And we talked about that as a man, you've been given a very unique leadership. Not just any leadership, because leaders, women can be great leaders. But men, uh, Christian men, God, godly men, has been given a, a duty and a responsibility to be called what we call headship, which is to create flourishing wherever you go. That whenever you step foot into any location, your presence should flourish that place. When you step foot into your home, 
your wives, your sisters, your brothers, your nieces, your nephews, your siblings, they should say, I'm so glad so-and-so's home. So-and-so's home. Yay. There should be a flourishing that comes when your presence is there. There should be a flourishing because you help create that, because you are listening to the call of God. See, there's a unique flourishing that you bring wherever you are, whether it's in church. When you're in church, it should be the exact same thing. That as a man, as a man of God, then when you step foot into the community of God, your sisters and your people around you should be, oh, thank goodness so-and-so is here. Not like, oh, my Lord, so-and-so is here. Right? There should be a joy and a, and a, and a hope. And if, the, and if all of our men in our church gather together with that same mentality of flourishing, our community should flourish. You guys follow me? Right? And the same way when you go to your workplace, your workplace should flourish because your presence is there. All right? And so, but then, then we talked about, like, really what, what keeps men from flourishing. Right? Passivity. Being passive. Trying to escape reality, not taking up responsibility. You know what? I'd rather play games. I'd rather, you know, fantasize about what I could have or what I should have rather than dealing with what I do have. We start talking about things like, you know what? Guys, you, you're, you're passive because you rather stay silent when you should be saying something, speaking up. You pretend to be busy when you're really not busy so that you don't have to deal with the actual problems that's happening around you that God has actually placed you in to help. To create. So we talked about flourishing in terms of male. And then female, and our sisters, our women, talked about how you create flourishing. Okay? And I know the word helper comes off as kind of like negative because you think like helper is assistant, helper is like maid, helper is like, you know, second class. But the Bible declares helper as shield, as power, as guard. Do you guys realize that? Do you guys, let, let, me, let me try to paint this picture better for you, okay? Think of... The 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. Think about how, what loser of men they were, okay? We had fishermen. We had activists. We had idiots who were, you know, like making money off of people. We had, like, cheaters. We had liars all on this crew. And yet God's help, Jesus' help, turned them from nobodies into history makers. He turned them from nobodies into history makers. And do you know what? The title given to women are, it's the same title given when Jesus Christ helps, when God helps, is that you have the ability to turn any situation into history-making situations. You guys realize that? Sisters, look at your brother and say, you need me. Right? Look at your brother and say, you need me. Right? You cannot do this without me. And that's the truth. That is the truth. You cannot, brothers, we cannot do this without our sisters, right? Because there needs to be that pairing. There needs to be that completeness. There needs to be that complementary work coming together to create flourishing. If, you step, if, a, if a brother stands out and says, I can do this by my own. I got this. I'm a man. I can do this. You step out, and the moment you fail, you like, you know, your pride gets in the way. You get diminished, and you just kind of fall down. You're like, you're nobody. You know what you need? You need the voice of a health. You need a strong woman to come alongside. You need a woman that understands future, who sees, who sees glory and not sees you as who you are, right? Who sees, that's okay. Let's make this happen, right? Because sisters, listen, can I tell you, you can make history, right? You are history makers. That's what it looks like to be in this picture, in this, in, in this role of man and woman before God, okay? And then last week, Evan talked about how does that role play out in marriage and singleness, right? So, so if a man's role is this unique leadership to create flourishing wherever he goes, and a woman's role is to uh, come alongside him right, and to push and to make that happen, how does that work out in marriages? How does that work out in singleness? In marriages, for a husband, it plays out like this, very simple. You create flourishing in your home as a husband when you are willing to sacrifice, Ephesians 5, right, for your wife and your family, when you elevate them, when you place your right, their rights before you, when you're willing to go to bed tired at night, not fi fighting for every moment that they feel connected, they feel alive, they feel like love, they feel like cherished because you're in their life. Creating an atmosphere, a spiritual um, a spiritual atmosphere for the family. I'm not talking about, like, spiritual atmosphere, like, y'all got to be praying every single moment and, like, you know, like, sprouting verses everywhere you go. I mean, I can't stand that, by the way, right? I remember, like, 
I was running, I was like doing this, this, this obstacle course, this Tough mother, and I had this one brother with me, and we were just, go, we're like, we're not running up the hill, we're like crawling up the hill, right? Homie coming next to me, he's like, hey, PT, it's okay, man, because we can soar on wings of eagles, right? Because the Bible's out there. Shut up, man. Like, I ain't got no time to soar right now, man. Like, I'm crawling, right? You know, like, I'm not talking about that type of spiritual atmosphere, okay, guys? I'm talking about that you create this natural environment that, you can talk about Christ. You can talk about the deeper things in life. You can begin to think about how God has impacted you. You start making decisions centered upon God, not about what's convenient, what's easy for your family. See, a man's job as a husband in the family is to, is to sacrifice. You know, so that any, listen, so any woman activist who comes into your home and looks at your wife and say, Oh, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, you, you, are, you are your own woman. This is your body. This is who you are. Stand up. Be strong. Roar, right? Your wife should respond by saying, what are you talking about? My man loves me. He elevates me. He puts his rights before mine. He makes sure that my dreams, my goals are, uh, are, are, are met. I'm flourishing. Like, I don't need this. <laughs> like, you're crazy, you know? That should be the response from our wives. Not like, yeah, you're right. My husband sucks, right? He sucks, you know? And in the same way, as a wife in a marriage, you, you help create flourishing by, by doing this. Because sometimes your husband, they're not perfect, right? They're not perfect, and they're going to make a lot of dumb mistakes. And when, when you tell them that's a dumb mistake, and they say, no, listen to me, right? Trust me. And they go and they do it, and they utterly fail, right? You, the way you nourish and build and make history with your family and say, you're still my man. You're still my man. We messed up. We messed up. Not just you. Technically, you messed up, but we're together in this. We messed up. We'll do it again. Let's do it again. Let's start over. When you do that, I tell you, there's something powerful in that. It'll make the guy realize, I can never do that again. Right? I can never make that mistake again. I have a wife who loves me, who's willing to be there. Right, who believes in me, who actually sees glory when there's like really nothing, right? Right, wow. That's flourishing. You guys follow me? And wh- why are we going through this, by the way? It's, it's for, and for those of you guys who are single, if you guys are like, you're thinking like, well, how's this important to me? Ladies, I need you to look for characteristics like that, right, in your brothers, right? And the brothers now, are, are the brothers that you are thinking about or dating or even thinking about dating, are they men who are willing to have to, I mean, not to have to be perfect about it, but are they sacrificing? Are they willing to give up their rights? Are they, are, are they men who actually create a spiritual setting, right? I'm not saying that you don't have to be like kumbaya, my lord, around the circle all day, but is, it, is, the, is the atmosphere that is being created a spiritual atmosphere? Do they have that characteristic? Are they moving in that direction? Because then, yeah, if you're looking, if you, if you find guys like that, I mean, I get it. This is important. But that's also more important, right? Because this will fade, but that will only increase. You guys get me? Glory will only increase. Physical features will only, I mean, I mean you can get plastic surgery and stuff like that. But you know, we don't, but you get what I'm saying, right? You get what I'm saying? In the same way, brothers, are you finding sisters like that? Sisters who are actually encouraging, elevating, lifting, who uses her words Right, or use her power to bring people up rather than shoot people down. Are, 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 you, are you interested in the girl because she, she, she gossips all these times? Does her words destroy people or do they actually heal people? That's what you should be looking for. You guys follow me? Right? And so when you guys bring your, your, your boyfriends or your future guys and you say, hey, PT, this is my guy. And like, if he's not that characteristic, I'm be like, all right. I'm telling you, this is not. I told you first, right? Mark this day, May 19th, uh, right? <laughs> It's been said, okay? This is on you now, right? So that's why we, and, and how does flourishing happen? That's how flourishing happens in the marriage. And how does flourishing happen in singleness? Is that you use your time, right? You use your time wisely. You have a gift that no couple has, a gift that I do not have anymore, right? It's the gift of time. To be able to use summers, weekends, to be able to use your finances, to be able to use your vacations, to be able to use these things for the flourishing of things around you, spending your summers blessing children ministry through VVS, spending your summers overseas blessing whatever countries we go to, spending your summers blessing your small group, your community group, your church, spending your summer watching over your family, spending, your, spending that time, using that time 
for the flourishing of those around you, of things around you. You guys get me? All right? So that's, that's the introduction, right? All right. <laughs> Long joke. But that was, that was where, that's, where we're, that's where we've been. That's where we've been. That's where we've been. And today, the question that should arise from that, all of that, is this. Well, how do I start? How do I start bringing this restoration, PT? How do I start bringing this restoration to my family? How do I start bringing this restoration to my church, my small group, my community? How do I start bringing this restoration to my work family, my friendship family? How do I start bringing this restoration into the family? And so we're going to open our Bibles. We're going to learn a couple things today. Okay, three things about this. All right, go to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. I'm going to go from 11 to 32. Judges chapter 6, if I can find it. Judges chapter 6. Okay. So let me give you a quick background on the book of Judges. All right. The book of Judges is a, is a time in God's family history. This is God's people, his family. This is the history of them. He placed them into a home. He, he delivered them from slavery. He called them his, and he says, I will place you in this home. All I ask is that you would trust me and obey. If you obey, you will flourish. If you disobey, right, you will lose. And so when they came in, of course they obeyed, but then after a while what ends up happening is that they got, they got a little lazy. They got a little bit sidetracked, and they start running after other things, running after other gods. And God sees his family's heart, and he sees how far they've fallen apart or how messed up, how broken things have gotten. And so what does he do? He has to wake them up, and he brings in a nation, a nation around them to say, all right, come in, conquer them, oppress them for a season. And when the people of God realize, what in the world, why are we in this situation? Where is our God? And then they cry out once again to God, the head of the family, what happens? He raises up a judge to come in, deliver God's people, they're good, and they, re- they receive peace again. For, for a time. You guys follow? And that, is the, that was the cycle. And then what happens? They did the exact same thing. They'll screw up again. God sends a country to teach them a lesson, to, to guide them, right, to, to remind them. He raises up a judge, defeats the army, gives peace to the land. And after a while, they repeat the same cycle. And this is one of the cycles. This is the cycle where he calls in the judge Gideon. He, he raises up Gideon as the one who is going to help deliver and restore the family. He raises up Gideon to be the person who's going to restore the family of God, his personal Gideon's family, but also God's family, right? And this is the worst time in all of Israel's history. This is the worst occupation they've had. It's by the group called the Midianites. It was kind of like North Korea type of uh, occupation, right? They were abject poverty. These guys could not move. They could not talk. They, they were just constantly in control. They were losing everything. So God's people were in deep, utter, utter, utter pain, brokenness, loss. And God says, I'm going to restore it, and I'm going to use you, Gideon. And this is the call for Gideon, right? So the question today is what? How do we restore a broken family? How do we restore a broken church? How do we restore a broken community? How do we restore a broken uh, work community? How do we restore what is broken? We're going to learn it today through Gideon. Uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 11, 11 to 14. So the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. So off the bat, where is Gideon? He is hiding in a winepress. So you know what a winepress is? It's like one of those big old vats that you have to step in to like squeeze the grapes you know, to make wine. But there was no grapes because the land was in abject poverty. But he's hiding in there, and he was threshing wheat. He's just kind of like doing this so that they couldn't see over his head. Why? Because if they saw what he was doing, like, hey, there's food? You're not allowed to eat. <laughs> what are you doing? Right? They'll take the food. The Midianites will come and they'll take the, the, they'll take the food and take what he has. So he's hiding. He's just threshing, um, threshing the wheat. And so God comes. The, Lord, the angel of the Lord comes, sits next to him, pops up, and says this in verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He calls him mighty warrior. Verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of the Median. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength 
you have and saved Israel out of the Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Okay? How do we start restoring our broken families? How do we start restoring what is broken? The first thing is stop thinking that you can't do it. Stop thinking that you cannot do it. Stop being passive about the situation. Stop being, um, stop blaming or waiting for someone else to come and do the work for you. See, what was Gideon saying? What was Gideon's reply? When God came up to him and says, mighty warrior, Gideon's reply was, yo, Lord, like, what are you talking about? Where, where is our Savior? We remember the stories of how you brought people out of Egypt. We're here, but now you've abandoned us. Why won't you bring us another Moses? Why won't you bring us someone else to help us? And God was like, mighty warrior. And he's just not even listening. And he's like, yeah, but where's our help? Am I not sending you? Yeah, but where's our help? Am I not sending you? Go in your strength. See, what Gideon is failing to realize is what? He sees the problem. He sees the brokenness. He sees the issue. And God is saying, because you see it, let me send you. You guys get that? Because you see it, why can't you believe that you can do it? Because you see the brokenness, why can't you believe that you are the answer to the problem? Why are you waiting for someone else to come and fix it? When there's brokenness in our homes, what do we do? A lot of us, we play the passive role. I don't care. They can do whatever they want. I see the problem. I see what it's doing to my mom. I see what my dad's doing. It's hurting my mom. Whatever. It's got to get over it. I'm done. Move on. I'm not going to do anything about it. I see it, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Right? Because I'm waiting. I'm waiting for something else to happen. I'm waiting for someone to show up and tell my dad what to do. I'm waiting for someone to show up and set things right. I'm waiting for someone else to do the work. And God's saying, mighty warrior, am I not sending you? Sometimes in church, we see church messed up, broken, in little pockets, small groups here. And we have all the words to say, this is not working well. This is not doing, we're not doing good here. We're not doing good there. This is bad. And yet, what? We do not stand up and say anything about it. You see, what God is saying here is this. How do you restore what is broken? How do you restore a broken family? It said, you got to stop thinking that you can't do it. You got to stop waiting for someone else to show up and save the day. You are a man and a woman of God born with the purpose that when you step foot into any location, you are to bring flourishing. It is part of the very essence of the moment you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is to bring flourishing wherever you go, in your homes, in your church, in your work, and wherever it is that you are at, it should flourish because of you. But the problem that we always have is that we are either passive and say, you know what, wait for someone else to come and do this work for me. Where is the help coming from? Oftentimes in church, I get this situation all the time when I hear people telling about how bad their church is and how things are, aren't great. I say, what are, you, what are you guys doing? We're just waiting for the next pastor to come. We're hoping he's going to do it. Waiting for the next pastor to come. You know that fool's a sinner too, right? He can't save you, right? If you see the problem, why can't you? How long have you been in church my whole life? You've been in church. How many messages have you heard? Thousands. If you have heard thousands of messages, and we had this amazing thing called the internet. Right? Loads of truth on there that we can find. I mean, there's other stuff out there, but there's loads of truth that you can find. Are you telling me that you cannot, as a man and a woman of God, step in to help flourish your family? No, I got to wait for someone else. Why can't God deliver it? Because he's calling you mighty warrior. He's saying, am I not sending you? If you can see it, then you are the, if you can see the reason behind the brokenness, then you have to realize that you are the solution to it as well. You guys get me? You guys get that? We, we, we got into this bad mentality of being passive our whole life, that we would wait for someone else to do the work. All the while, we, we ourselves say, I know exactly what's wrong. Then be the solution to the prayer, okay? And so look what, look what the excuse that Gideon gives after... Uh, God says this to him. Verse 15, it says, But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? 
My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. And we will strike down all the Midianites together. Right? You know what he's saying here, man? The excuse that Gideon is saying is like, I'm nobody. No one's going to listen to me. I can't do anything. I can't, I can't make anything happen. Right? Like, I'm just, I'm nothing. By yourself, you're nothing. True, right? But again, the assumption here is that you are a man of God. That you know your purpose. That you are a woman of God. That you know your purpose. That, that, that you would step, you don't have to have all the right answers. You don't even have to have all the skill set. But that you're willing to step into it and not make the excuse of, why aren't you helping me? And I'm, and I'm, the, I'm nobody. Send somebody else. Send another person to help. Do you guys realize that? That in your homes, if the father is messed up, if the mother is messed up, and you're there, and you're, you're part of that, maybe God is saying, it's time for you to grow up. Sit your dad down. Sit your mom down. They're not going to listen to me. But then fight for it. Fight for it. Do you know why sometimes we're, I, I, I hear people, you know, it's funny how Jonathan said, like, you know, you're 30 years old and you still feel like a kid. Right? Right? You, 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 I, I hear this all the time from brothers. Like, PT, like, I still feel like, you know, I have my master's degree, but I feel like I'm still a child. You know why? You know why? Because you have spent your whole life being passive like a child. See, the moment you start engaging and stepping into it, you're going to feel the burden. You're going to feel the weight of adulting. Right? You're going to feel the actual responsibility of it. And you're going to have to actually... Fight, the co- fight to deal with the issues of it. And you're right. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to go well for you. But God never uses beautiful and powerful things to change anything. He always uses those who are willing. Right? He uses those who are the least among anyone. You ever seen the, uh, have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? Have you seen Lord of the Rings, the trilogy? Right? Uh, yes. Love that thing. The last one, the last one was called what? Uh, the, the Return of the King, right? It's when Aragon, the, the, the ranger, he took on his role as full king of, um, what's that land called again? Middle-earth, right? Full king of Middle-earth, you know? And at the, the last, at the, everything's over. They had this coronation ceremony for Aragon, right? And he's, you know, he gets king. He's singing the song. Everyone's like, woohoo, King Aragon, right? And he walks up to three hobbits, four hobbits, right? The hobbits were like these tiny little, like, nobodies, right? There's just little people living in the shires. And, you know, the hobbits are like, they're trying to like bow to the king. Like, oh, hey, king, right? They're trying to do this little bow. And Aragon says, stop. He says, you bow to no man. And he bows to them, right? Because the whole journey was how these insignificant little people with no names to live their life just, you know, smoking pipes and eating food, right? Changed the course and history of Middle Earth. You know, and J.R. Tolkien, he's, he is this a beautiful writer where he's, he's taking that as an illustration of the gospel illustration of the God uses people who are like hobbits, nobodies, and changes the history of men. You guys get that? He never uses great people. But the thing is this, you have to know your purpose. You have to, and no matter how difficult the journey is, you have to know your purpose. You have to know that as a man of God, what is my responsibility? That wherever I step, I'm supposed to create flourishing. That as a woman of God, what is my responsibility? That I'm not supposed to sit back down and just complain and whine about why things aren't going the way they should and wishing for better men to be in my life, but actually to push the men that I have in my life to become the history-making men that I want in my life. To change the course of whatever it is, family, church, Work wherever you go. How do we start restoring the picture of family? Stop thinking you can't do it. Stop waiting for some special person to show up to save the day. God is saying, mighty warrior, am I not calling you? You guys follow me? All right. And so the story continues here. How do we restore Picture of the family. I'm going to skip a few verses. I'm going to get back to that. But I'm going to go down to verse 17 here. That one of the things that God begins to ask now 
as he's, as he's called him, he's like, okay, I'm going to use you. Mighty warrior, I'm going to call you to destroy these Midianites who have, to this point for so many years, placed our family in object poverty, who have broken our family, who has broken my family. I'm going to use you to restore that and to defeat them and to bring flourishing once again. But before you do anything, there's one thing you have to do. And it's a difficult thing. Before you even begin the restoration process, there's something you have to do. Okay? Verse 17, check this out. Verse 7, oh, not verse 17, just kidding. Verse uh, 25. Verse 25. All the way down to verse 25. We'll get back to 17, okay? 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asher pole beside it. This is the youngest kid in the family. God is saying, look, you know that thing that your family has been worshiping? That idol, that big old pole? I need you to cut it down. I need you to show everyone, especially your family, we're not worshiping this anymore. This is not what's going to drive us. This is not what's going to give us our identity and our words. I need you to cut that mug down, right? And in verse 18, he says this, or verse 26, he says, Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So not only are you going to cut down the problem, the issue, the reason why you're in this mess, you're going to build up in its place the very, the very center of its salvation, my worship. You're going to show everyone this is what we've lost. This is what we've forgotten. This is the purpose that we need to go back to. I need you to build that back up, okay? Now check this out. Gideon is, this is how I know the Bible is so real because the way they tell a story is so real, right? Because Gideon is like us. He's just like, he's not like, yeah, I got this, God, I'm going to go do it. What does Gideon do? He's like all cowards like us, right? He's like, so Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at nighttime rather than in the daytime. So basically he said, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm kind of scared. You're telling me to step in. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Median, oh, mighty warrior. Um, let's go do it at nighttime. Right? Like, chop. Right? Like, stop it. You're making too much noise. Right? You're waking people up. Stop. Right? It's like, how are we going to cut this stupid thing down? Just, right? He's doing it at nighttime because he does not want anyone to know or get caught cutting down this pole. He's, again, he's like, it's like Seth coming home and saying, God, like, like, like God telling Seth, you need to burn down your, um, your grandma's altar, right? That, that's in the house. And then Seth was like, oh. Okay, <laughs> like, right? You can see him, like, I can imagine him, like, tiptoeing, like, trying to throw, like, one, one altar at a time away, you know? Like, it's just crazy like that because you're, you're scared of what's going to happen, right? Because you're a nobody. You, I mean, God said you're somebody, but, you know, inside you feel like you're a nobody, right? So how am I going to do anything? So check this out. Verse 28, it says, In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asher pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. So the men of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son. He must die. And this is what Gideon was afraid of. I was like, oh, there it is. I'm about to die. Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asher pro beside it. He did something. He, 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 he jumped in and he was willing to make a stand because God told him to, right, to take down the, the idols of his life, the idols of his family's life, and he did it knowing that he probably could be killed for it. He's a kid. He could probably be punished severely, killed for this act. Right? At least the worst thing, I mean, the worst thing is death. Second the worst thing is being kicked out of the whole family and being ostracized, right? Possible. But then his father, which is kind of interesting, I think his father was trying to save his life or something right here. His father came up with a really cool, like, like uh, jujitsu here. He says, but Joash replied to the, uh, to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And so Joash, you know, his dad was like, look, if he's really God, Gideon will be punished by himself, right? You don't have to do the work for him. You don't have to do the work for God, all right, for Baal. So that day, they called Gideon Jerobal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar, okay? How do we restore the picture of the family? First, you stop thinking you can't do it. Secondly, 
you take a stand and you face the idols. You take a stand and you face the idols. Okay? Gideon was about to defy his father. In, a country, in, in, a, in an ancient world where family is everything, and especially if you're the youngest son, you get nothing. You get lucky if you get even a part of the inheritance. He was about to defy his father in front of other men, which is to show disrespect to his father's reputation. He was going to go against everything that, you know, culture and tradition tells him is okay to do. He was about to get kicked out of his family, possibly, or even die for this act. That's why he did it in secret, because he's hoping he can, no one can find out. And you're just like, okay, wow, whoa, alter, what happened? That's weird. Did you know who did this, right? That's what Gideon's plan was. But they found out anyway, so that was just dumb, right? He was willing to step into this, to stand up and to face his idols. And in the economy of God, listen, guys, in the economy of God, any type of restoration, any type of transformation, any type of revelation, any type of um, Restoration, okay, only happens after, after we lay down and we destroy the obvious visible pattern of idolatry in our lives. That you're willing to stand up and face it at the cost of everything. That, in that moment, not, I'm not saying like in that moment, there's this is cosmic energy or something that happens that in that moment when you're willing to surrender your every right that you possibly have to obey, in that moment what you begin to see is you begin to see the hand of God stepping in, even though you can't imagine it, but you begin to see the hand of God stepping in and bringing restoration, bringing back truth, restoring what is broken once again, starting the journey, changing the trajectory, bringing revelation it's only in that moment when you say yes. That's why I love baptism. That's why I love baptism. Because baptism, like, it's, it's, it's in that moment when you, in your mentality, say, even if after I get baptized and I will be persecuted unto death, I will do it. Even if I know that for 100% that I will die after this baptism and I will do it, and you still do it, and in that moment is when God begins to say, okay, now I know. Now I know you trust me. Now I know that there's something else in your life, there's, that I am in your life, not something else. What does that look like for us? That sometimes in our families, broken fathers or messed up mothers, and we're afraid because, you know, we live off of them. <laughs> we're afraid because, you know, they pay our rent, our bills, practically everything for us. We're afraid to step into that and say, there's something wrong. We're afraid to, to battle that idol that maybe our father or our mother is facing, to bring it to light. We're afraid to give them the truth of it. Because you know why? Because when truth comes, when idol is revealed, you know what happens to the person? They feel, they feel, how dare you? I mean, how dare you call me out on that? Like, who do you think you are? They feel attacked. Because you attack the very thing that they love the most. But it's only if that idol is destroyed can you begin real restoration. Is, do you guys get me what I'm talking about? Like, like I, I, few possible examples that I have, even with this story. Like, it's, it's when, when, you know, I shared a uh, story about my wife many times, right? When we, when we were dating, you know, she was my idol and I was her idol. And it was just this really bad idol, idolic relationship with each other, Right? Right? And until it was that moment when God said, you have to cut it out. And I was like, I cannot see a future behind this. But in the moment of obedience, I was like, okay, I will. And did it, did, did it turn out well? No, not for four years. Four years. It was like miserable for four years. I was single and miserable for four years, right? right? Miserable, very miserable, extremely <laughs> miserable, right? Four years, right? Broken, you know? I'm not saying it's going to work out well for you. But in that moment, what happens? You change the trajectory and you begin the restoration because you broke down 
the idol. You are willing to face the idol that's in your life. Maybe you're in a relationship, right, that, that you are idolizing deeply, that, that, that you, you're so afraid to hurt so-and-so, to say something to so-and-so because you're afraid that they're not going to take it well. And you're afraid that if I speak truth, they're just going to be like, I'm done with you and walk away from you. And so you allow for the broken cycle to kind of continue over and over. Even though God says, you see the problem, you know you have the problem, be the part of the solution. But if I face the idol, what happens? What if like, things don't go right? It might not, honestly. But you step on a trajectory that brings restoration. You guys get me? It's only in the area of complete obedience, surrender, that we begin to see God's hand step in and say, okay, let me use you. Okay, I know, I know you trust me. I know you trust me. You know, there's, there's, there's like incidents in our, in our church where like, you know, brothers come to me and say like, you know, like, I'm afraid if I, if I continue with this job, PT, I'm going to sell my soul, man. I'm like, well, quit the job, but I need the money, right? But it's, it's telling me to do things I don't want to do, right? So what do I do? What, what, what are you going to do? Well, what should I do? You're going to ask me for wisdom. Like, what should I do? I, like, I don't know, right? <laughs> Figure it out, bro. You're a man, right? But then in that moment, it's okay. I'm just not going to do it. And then hopefully things, whatever. But, in that, but it's, it's in that moment of surrender that we begin to see God's presence and God's glory upon that person. And instead of, long story short, instead of actually going through with the program and doing what they told him to do to sell his soul, and, you know, cheat clients and stuff like that, he decided not to. And he ends up, in, in the end, anyways, being the best salesperson they had in the company's history, actually, for that group. Why? It is in the journey of obedience, the surrender, that we begin to see transformation and restoration. But can you imagine if you continue to do that? That you begin to engage that in every area of your life? Areas that, that, that you're so afraid to cut down the poles, cut down the idols, to face? I don't want to, I don't want to say that to my boyfriend, PT. Like, what if, like, they don't want me anymore? All right? But what if, what if you... What if you engage now in a relationship that's going to bring flourishing from not just your, not, not just with you, but into generations after you? Would you not want that? Or would you risk a cycle of brokenness only because you are so afraid at this moment to do something hard? How do you restore broken family, guys? One, you got to stop thinking that you can't do it. All right? Two, you got to stand up and face your idols. You got to face them. and Not just face them. Cut them down and establish God there. Wherever it is that your idols are at. Success. You hear it from Ha. Right? Love. Laziness. Money. Power. Wherever it is that your idol is at. Where you're willing to face it. Are you willing to say, I'm going to trust you and not the repercussion I'm going to get out of doing this. And when you take that step, when you take that step, I've never seen a journey when someone's taking that step and the trajectory is always, is, 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 is deeply evil. The trajectory always ends up in the glory and the blessing of everyone else around them. It has always been the case. Their lives may not be, you know, in, in the world's eyes, might be like the most successful life, but the lives that they've impacted. Transformative, Right? And that works everywhere, in your church, in your home, in your work family, church family, home family, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, okay? You got to stand up. If there's a problem, you got to say, I'm not going to be the one waiting for someone else to talk to my husband or talk to my wife. If there's an issue, I'm not going to be the one waiting for someone to talk to my dad or fix my dad's issue or fix my mom's issue. That if I see it, I'm called into it. And if I called into it, I can't just like, you have a problem, right? I said, this is our problem. We have placed this as our idol and not God himself. Can we take it down? And you fight for it. You fight for it until it's gone. And you deal with whatever repercussion that comes. Because in the future, because in the end, it's glory. You guys get me? A moment of pain results in lifetime of restoration 
I have, we have brothers and sisters in this church who, because of their obedience, you know, um, brought their siblings into the, fam- into the church family. They're willing to. We have people here that, 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 that's fought these battles, right? So finally, how do we do this? Okay, how do we do this? By what strength, by what ability, by what skill set do we have? Okay, the answer is Jesus, right? It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we even have the strength to do this. Honestly, they can go out right now and be like, yeah, I'm going to be a man, right? And go do this and face the, but after a few months of like, Parents giving you attitude, your wife's giving you attitude, your husband's giving you attitude, your significant other's giving you attitude. Things not changing in your small groups and in your church. Things aren't changing in your home. After that, you're like, you know what? I'm just kind of done. I'd rather have peace than to deal with this headache. And you give up. Right? That happens easily. If you do it by your willpower, it happens all the time. See, it cannot be done with our willpower. It must be done with the right gospel perspective. So check that verse 17. Okay? And so... So Gideon really is figuring out, like, how do I do this? Like, what, what, what's going to happen? Like, I, I, need, I need some revelation here. In verse 17, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. So he's going to give an offering. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So it was the angel of the Lord, but all of a sudden it switched to what? The Lord, right? It seems like it's kind of like going back and forth. Verse 18, Gideon went in, prepared your goat, prepared a young goat from an ephah, a flour. He made a bread of without yeast, putting meat in a uh, basket and his broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat, place it under unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread, Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is, everyone say peace, peace. To this day it stands in Oprah of the Israelites, right? And so what it is? What, what is it that we're hoping for? We're hoping for the peace to come. We want peace to happen. We want restoration. We want our families to heal from its brokenness. We want to see our church heal from its brokenness. We want to see a place of work, our friendship to be healed, our families that we call families healed of its brokenness. But we don't want it, but we engage in it. And when it doesn't go well, we lose our peace. We, we, lose, we get this anxiety and we give up. And yet here we see this picture, this beautiful picture. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, they don't have the name Jesus, right, because Jesus wasn't revealed to the New Testament. But in the, in the Old Testament, there is this figure that seems to be, like, all over the Old Testament that comes in and out of people's lives often, right? This, this figure that they, most people call just the angel of the Lord. But as Christian scholars, Christian theologians look back and look upon that, they say that this is a very specific angel. It's called the, the angel of the Lord. The angel is the word messenger, the messenger of the Lord, right? This is the very personification of God on earth in the Old Testament. This was Christ himself. And so what Gideon realized was this. He saw God face to face and he was spared. He saw his broke. He, he knew that God saw his brokenness, saw his weakness, saw everything about him that does not deserve any recognition or accolade. He saw that God saw him that way, and yet he was spared. And, God, and the angel of the Lord, God said to him, do not worry. I will spare you. But not only will I spare you, I will lift you. You know what that means for us, guys? That when we begin to see the brokenness of our families, the brokenness of our communities and our churches and our, fam- and our, and our workplaces and our friendships, when we begin to see the brokenness within all these families that we call family, and we recognize Things can't be fixed. I don't know how to do this. I'm supposed to step into it. I don't know how. And yet we look at the picture of Jesus Christ who came to bring peace. He came to take what is broken and to make it whole again. That's why he did what he did here on earth. He didn't just came and do all his miracles for fun, right? He was like, oh, yeah, miracles, right? He healed the lame. He he, um, gave sight to the blind. He... uh, Heal the sick. Why? To show them this is how it's meant to be. 
There's meant to be restoration. There's meant to be healing. There's meant to be freedom. It cannot stay this way. And so when we look to the gospel, when we look to Jesus Christ, and we see him die and come back from the dead, we know one thing is for sure. It will not stay this way. You guys get me? It will not stay this way. And so when we look into our family's brokenness, when we look into our, our battles as we begin to face them and we think, can I really bring any change to this? Can I bring any change to my family? Can I bring any change to my church? Can I bring possibly any change to my work? When we look at the brokenness, we realize one thing. If we look at it through our eyes, the answer is no. But we look at it through the gospel eyes, we realize it will not stay this way. It cannot stay this way. Because what is broken can be made new. And the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us it will be made new. So you have the courage to step in. And no matter how difficult your father or your mother may be, you come into it, you battle, you fight it, you step in as a man of God, as a woman of God, and you call the shots that needs to be called, you do what needs to be done to flourish that family. And no matter how hard it is, no matter how long it takes, what drives you forward is always this truth in this picture, there's a resurrection. It will not be this way forever. My God is real. He has come to bring peace. He has given me peace, and I will fight to my last breath to bring peace to wherever I go. Because it will come. You guys get me? Without, without the gospel to guide you, to push you, to drive you, without the truth of it, that there is a real resurrection, you will die as soon as your energy fails out. You will die as soon as your will goes away. But if the gospel is there, if Christ is there in your life, speaking and moving and saying, keep going. I know the days are long. I was in the tomb for three days and everyone thought it was over. But there is a resurrection. Keep going. Your church may seem like it's not going anywhere. It's kind of like keep going because there will be a resurrection. Your family seems broken. Your wives, your husbands does not seem like they're connecting. Keep going because there will be a resurrection. And if you have the courage to stand up into it, to cut down the idols, to believe that God has called you mighty warrior, to call you to be the answer to the prayer that you see, the problems that you see, you will see the resurrection. You guys follow me? All right, let's follow